Spectrum's next. Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi weekly 30 minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm joined today by Spectrum contributors Rick Karnaski and Lisa Katovich. Our interview is with Jeff Silverman, a recent PhD in astrophysics from UC Berkeley, and Nicholas McConnell, a PhD candidate unscheduled to be awarded his Ph.D. in astrophysics by UC Berkeley this summer. Jeff and Nicholas have generously agreed to help Spectrum present three shows on astronomy explaining the big ideas, recent experiments, international collaborations, and improvements in observational technology that are transforming astronomy. In part one, we discuss extrasolar planets known as exoplanets and the search for liquid water in the universe. Nicholas McConnell and Jeff Silverman, welcome to Spectrum. Thanks for having us. You're both astronomers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And today you're going to talk with us about what's been happening in astronomy in, say, the past five years that really stands out for you, that's very salient, that you think is important. Nicholas, why don't you bring up the first topic that we're going to discuss here? Sure. Well, there are many things to choose from, but for me, one of the most exciting things that I think has been happening is that over the last two or three years, thanks mostly to a NASA satellite called the Kepler mission, Astronomers have been discovering literally thousands of new planets orbiting other stars uh, in our own galaxy every year. And one particularly exciting discovery that happened in December 2011 was we found a planet around another star that appeared to be in the so-called habitable zone of that planet, the zone where the distance from the star was appropriate that the temperature on the planet could possibly be not too cold and not too hot to have liquid water. And how much of that exoplanet research is done here in the Bay Area? Quite a large amount. There's a large, healthy exoplanet team in the UC Berkeley Astronomy Department, and many scientists here are heavily involved in the Kepler mission. Besides this planet in the habitable zone, like Nicholas mentioned, thousands of planets have been discovered by this Kepler mission of all shapes and sizes, from nearly Earth size to Uranus and Neptune size to Jupiter and a little bit bigger orbiting their stars that are sun-like, sometimes a little bit smaller, sometimes a little bit bigger than the sun, at various distances. There's maybe a couple of examples where we've seen a system of a few planets that sort of mimic the sizes of planets in our solar system at some of the distances, but most of these planets are found very close to their host star, nothing like what we see in our own solar system, things that are the size of Jupiter and Saturn that are orbiting even closer than Mercury. And so this is a huge weird question that's outstanding. People are trying to figure out how do you make these systems? How do you make these planetary systems? And why are they so prevalent and so different from what we know in our own solar system? And are there some sort of limitations to the finding techniques to to locate these planets that might sort of bias you towards finding these large, close planets? Spoken like a true scientist, yes, we are absolutely (laughs) biased to find big planets that are very close to their stars. So the first handful of planets that were found were very big, these so-called hot Jupiters, very big Jupiter-sized planets near their stars. We are definitely biased by the techniques to find these kinds of planets. Kepler is doing a bit of a better job finding smaller planets, finding them further out. And so we're getting into... uh, 
a point in time where we're close to being able to find similar-looking systems to the solar system, bigger planets further out, Earth-sized planets around the distance of Earth from the sun, and we're not really finding them as often as you might expect. And so it does seem still that even taking into account some of this bias, that our solar system is a bit of an oddball. Now, that certainly may change in the next few years. This is a huge, fast-moving field. But right now, we're still an oddball. Yeah, I, I have to say that the, the Kepler mission was designed so that over the course of the mission's lifetime, which was l- roughly a three-year time period starting maybe 2010 and going through 2013 or so, it was designed so that over that period, it could detect a planet maybe twice the size of Earth but orbiting its star at the same distance that the Earth orbits the sun. So Kepler is definitely doing a better job than previous missions finding planets that aren't quite as small as Earth but are getting down in that region where we can say this planet is actually fairly similar to the planet Earth. And because we're now simply becoming able to start to find planets like this, we can begin to say things about how common are Earth-like planets relative to these hot Jupiters that Jeff was talking about. Before, when we had only detected the hot Jupiters, there was nothing we could say about their relative abundance in the universe compared to planets like the Earth. Was there technology in Kepler that made this possible? Was there a breakthrough somehow in the the instrument? Uh, The thing Kepler does is it measures the brightness coming from a star over and over and over again. Uh, And what happens is that if a planet passes in front of the star along the line of sight to Earth, it blocks a little bit of the disk of the star, and so the star gets very slightly fainter. But these differences in the star's brightness are smaller than a percent. And so in order to pick out that signal, you need to have an instrument that can measure the brightness of a star very, very accurately, repeatedly, over and over again. And simply by having it outside the Earth's atmosphere, having it in space, and all of the different instrumental things they did inside that satellite enables Kepler to measure stellar brightnesses with more precision than any instrument that we'd done this for previously. Another interesting piece of technology that was something that they had to tackle, and and it's still sort of one of the limitations, actually, of Kepler, is because you're measuring the brightness of thousands of stars many, many times over and over and over again, that's a huge amount of data just pure raw pictures that you have floating on a spacecraft and you need to beam those down to earth to big computers to hold those and so one of the biggest limitations from my understanding is just the bandwidth it is hard to move that send that many you know picture files basically from space down you know different satellites to big data centers on earth and so they kind of do it in big bursts and in chunks and they only take certain uh, subsets of the pictures of different stars, very, very close uh, little snapshot postage stamps right around each of the stars that they're monitoring. And it's still huge amounts of data. Uh, and so this has been a big breakthrough for a number of different astronomy discoveries is the large amount of data, being able to move it through the Internet, through fiber optics and storing it and going through it in a fast, efficient way. Do you know if there's any kind of preliminary data analysis actually on the Kepler? I'm not completely sure, but the, uh, there is some, as far as I know, uh, basic calibrations and, and basic work that it does before it sends down some of the products. But looking, as Nicholas said, for these very slight amounts of dimming in the stars takes a lot of computing power and, and fancy algorithms that are run on big machines back on Earth. And one of the really interesting things that's actually been done with the Kepler data is after this processing, after you have um, sort of your reduced scientific measurements, Um, Recently, these data have been put on the Internet so that by crowdsourcing, people can go, uh, I think the website is called Kepler Zoo, and look at the the patterns of brightness versus time for all of these different stars. Um, And humans can try to find patterns that the best computer algorithms have failed to find. 
Um, and I think there is a space of patterns that computers don't do very well at, but humans are better at. Um, so we're using the public to try to get more planets uh, than what we'd be able to do just the astronomy community by itself. This is Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking about exoplanets with Jeff Silverman and Nicholas McConnell. Reflecting on Kepler, how do you think it's changed your worldview? The entire subfield in astronomy of, of exoplanets, planets around other stars, effectively didn't exist until the mid to late 90s. So you know, when I was in elementary school, it was nice to think about planets on around other stars and see it in the movies, but it was very sci-fi. Fast forward to, to me in, in college in the early 2000s, taking astronomy classes. Astronomers had discovered a handful of these exoplanets, and I distinctly remember one of my professors saying, you know, we found a few, we're going to find some more in the future. One day you'll pick up the newspaper and the front page will be a picture of an exoplanet. And sure enough, a few years ago, Berkeley astronomers took a picture of an exoplanet and it made the front page of the newspaper. Uh, and I'll never forget seeing that picture uh, on the front page of the newspaper, just like my professor in college predicted. This is a very fast-moving field. We're going to find even more planets, Earth-like, around sun-like stars that could very well have liquid water. It'll possibly be not that rare to have an Earth-like planet in the very near future. Personally, to me, I think it's great. It makes me hope that perhaps we can find an exact Earth analog around a sun analog, and perhaps there is intelligent life or some kind of life that we can find and is, I think, an amazing thing that, that astronomers can do for the world. I think with the discovery of planets that are similar to Earth or at least about the same size as Earth, we're beginning to go from detecting one, then a couple, to actually doing decent statistics where we can project how many of planets about the same size of Earth exist, say, in our galaxy. I tried to do a very, very rough calculation this morning. If you ask how many Earth-sized planets are there in the Milky Way, I think the answer is there's probably about a billion or a couple billion and so I think that's just another interesting way of looking at how Earth is not necessarily a unique environment in the universe. But just as we have so much diversity here on Earth, then in our galaxy we have evidence now that there is space and room to have as much diversity possibly throughout our galaxy. Uh, so I think we really are getting a profound sense of just what kind of environment we have for possibly life and for different conditions, not only in our own solar system, but in this much larger piece of the universe that we're only beginning to explore. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking about astrophysics with Nicholas McConnell and Jeff Silverman. Let's talk about water in the universe. So we found quite a bit of water in the universe, oddly enough. Sort of starting on the biggest scales, there's, there's some nebulae, some clusters of gas and particles out in the universe that are huge reservoirs of water and sort of related huge reservoirs of alcohols, ethanols, things like that. Coming a little bit closer to home and looking a little bit more recently in the past maybe five or ten years, there's been quite a few new detections, new possible detections, new lines of evidence of liquid water, 
ice water in our solar system in very interesting places. One, the moon of Saturn, known as Enceladus, is a very shiny, very bright object. It's a very, very white, snowy, clean-looking object. A handful of craters, much less cratered than our own moon, a little smaller than our moon as well. But it had some weird features to it. It looked kind of neat. And so the, the Cassini spacecraft, which has been around exploring Saturn and its moon systems and its ring system for the past decade or so, did a few very close flybys of this very interesting moon Enceladus. Figured out that most of the surface is solid ice, water ice, ammonia, hydrocarbon stuff as well. Also noticed that there were geysers coming off of the surface, which we've seen geysers on a couple of other moons of Jupiter and Saturn. But these were kind of interesting, and Cassini was there, and we lucked out, and Cassini actually flew through one of these geysers and got to detect the particles from the geyser itself right there. Very direct, in-situ measurements of what's the geyser. And it was mostly water and some ammonia, which was interesting. And then there's evidence that there was actually uh, more organic compounds in there. And so possibly there, this could lead to life. There could be some kind of bacteria down in the uh, innards of Enceladus that's sort of pushing uh, a little bit sort of the next step beyond what the evidence is actually telling us, but it's very, very tantalizing. Just about four or five years ago, a NASA panel on moons and moon explorations in the solar system said that Enceladus is probably the best possibility for current life outside of Earth in our own solar system. And the idea is that underneath this sort of very smooth, icy surface, there's probably a liquid ocean, mostly water, maybe a little bit of salt water, like I said, a little ammonia, some organic compounds perhaps, probably not gray whales and great white sharks, probably not even little fish and shrimp, but it seems reasonable that there could be microscopic organisms, some kind of life, you know, to be determined, but it's possible. There's liquid water, uh, there's reasonable conditions, it's not too salty, it's not too acidic, it's not too hot, and there does seem to be at least the building blocks, some of these organic compounds, perhaps. One outstanding issue is how thick is this outer ice layer? So there's been some ideas of, well, we should send another mission that's just going to drill in there and have a little submarine and go look around for fish and organisms. But we don't actually have a great handle on how thick that ice layer is. Uh, so Cassini is continuing to study this moon along with the rest of the stuff in the Saturn system, other moons, the planet itself, the rings. Uh, and we'll hopefully learn a little bit more about it, but they're already in the works, uh, both NASA, Japanese, and European missions to go explore Enceladus even more. Now, if you want to go a little bit closer than Enceladus, one of the most promising planets, areas in our solar system where people have thought about the possibility of liquid water, where we certainly know that frozen water exists, and where we have a head start on objects actually on the surface exploring, is the planet Mars. And there have been some recent discoveries about both water in the past history of Mars and possibly salty liquid water actually existing present day on Mars that are fueling a lot of excitement in the scientific community. Right now, we have two different kinds of instruments that are doing fantastic observations of Mars. One of them is called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It is a satellite in orbit around Mars that can take fantastically detailed photographs of the Martian surface. You can see features about a few feet across on the Martian surface with this satellite. And then the other are the famous Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. Spirit recently shut down, met its demise, even though these two rovers outlasted their nominal mission timeline by a 
factor of 10 or so. Opportunity is still exploring the Martian surface. And in both cases, instruments have found evidence for water on Mars. In the case of Opportunity, the rover fairly recently discovered this mineral vein in a rock in a crater on Mars that scientists are pretty certain could only have been created by liquid water flowing through a crack in the rock at some ancient time in Martian history and creating this particular mineral known as gypsum, which in certain variants is what we use to make plaster of Paris here on Earth. So there's evidence that in particular Martian environments, there was almost certainly liquid water on Mars in the past. Combine that with theoretical models of how the planet and its atmosphere would have evolved over time, and there are some pictures of ancient Mars being this sort of lush, liquid water, much warmer environment than it is today. And so possibly Mars in its past was a hospitable environment for life, uh, although I'll emphasize we've, we have not yet detected any evidence of present-day or fossilized life on Mars, but frankly, we haven't explored a very large fraction of that planet yet, and so I wouldn't be entirely surprised if some discovery came along in the future. Another very, very interesting observation on Mars coming from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is that looking over time at the edges of some of the craters on Mars, in the warm seasons, they actually found stream-like features that looked like dark streams were appearing on the edges of craters. And over the course of the warm season, as these craters were being more exposed to the sun and, and warming up a little bit, the streams lengthened, as you might expect, little trickles of liquid water to flow downhill. And based on mineral analysis, which you can do using spectroscopy from the orbiter, and just generally the overall pattern of how these streams change with the seasons, we think that's good evidence that some sort of salty water was creating the streams. Unfortunately, we were not able to directly detect water. What we see looks more to be like residue from a saltwater stream where the water evaporated or where the water is just below the surface. But it seems that in certain seasons, in certain places of the planet, there could actually be water and liquid form just at the surface or just below the surface of Mars today. I mean, if you have salt water on Mars, then I think there's at least some chance that you could have some kind of primitive life form thriving in it. It's been amazing the last few years using the orbiter and the rovers on Mars, the different lines of evidence that we have for this ice either on the surface or just below the surface, centimeters below the surface, inches below the surface. And so NASA just recently launched a, a mission to head to Mars, an even bigger rover, something like the size of a small car that's going to go around and specifically look for water, look for organic molecules, building blocks of life in different parts than where we've already explored on Mars. And that rover is called Curiosity, and it's supposed to land on the Martian surface this summer. Is there water on the moon, our moon? There is water on the moon in the form of hydrous molecules, so where mo water is directly incorporated into a solid rock. But I don't think there's any evidence for frozen or liquid water on the moon, certainly not liquid water. Can you reflect on the importance of water being discovered in our solar system or in some other solar system or galaxy? Clearly on Earth, water is essential for all life forms. And so whereas there are ideas about exotic kinds of life that could exist without a requirement of having water, it certainly seems like the most natural place to start looking for life outside of our own planet. So knowing that it exists in liquid form 
in different places in the universe and knowing, at least in our own solar system, where it exists is, I think, a really good start toward actually doing an earnest search for life outside Earth, maybe in our own solar system. And I think just knowing how much water there actually is in our universe makes it seem like the universe is maybe a friendlier place than we thought it was. One of the basic questions in astronomy of humanity, one of the things that got me interested in astronomy originally was, are we alone in the universe? Is there life out there in the solar system, in our galaxy? And looking for water is probably the best way, the most direct way to find where that life could be. Being able to go visit Mars, the moon, various moons in our own solar system, looking for that life uh, in the water or around the water, I think is, is something that's a fundamental question for all humankind, not just scientists and astronomers. That ends part one. Jeff Silverman and Nicholas McConnell will be back with part two on our next show. They will talk about supernovae and black holes. Rick Karneski and Lisa Katovich join me for the calendar and the news. Black Holes, the Harmonic Oscillators of the 21st Century. Presented by Andrew Strominger, Professor of Physics, Harvard University. Monday, March 12th. At 4.15 to 5.30 p.m., LeConte Hall, room number one. In the 20th century, many problems across all of physics were solved by perturbative methods which reduced them to harmonic oscillators. Black holes are poised to play a similar role for the problems of 21st century physics. They are at once the simplest and most complex objects in the physical universe. Professor Strominger will give an introduction to the subject intended for a general audience. The Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous, or LASER, is a monthly series of lectures, presentations, and networking between artists and scientists. This month's laser is on Monday, March 12th, at the Marishi Room of the Fromm Building at the University of San Francisco, 2130 Fulton Street. It is free, but please RSVP to p at scaruffy.com. The event starts at 7 with a talk by Indre Viscontis on the art and neuroscience of effective music performance. What is it about this art form that draws people in? What distinguishes a performance that is technically accurate, but unmusical from one that elicits the chills? We will explore how music engages the brain and why it continues to be a worldwide addiction. This will be followed by Rebecca Kamen's talk, Making the Invisible Visible, Discoveries Between Art and Science. The history of artist as scientist and scientist as artist will be shared, drawing from the collections of the American Philosophical Society, and the Chemical Heritage Foundation. The development of new art-science collaborations will also be discussed. Shamit Kotru of the Stanford Physics Department will speak on Are There More Dimensions of Space?, which will discuss how the extra dimensions proposed by some models, such as string theory, may explain and unify puzzles of modern physics. The night will conclude with Scott Kildall and Nathaniel Stern, who will discuss beaming Twitter messages to Glais 581 d an exoplanet 20 light-years away that can support extraterrestrial life using DIY technology. The website for LASER is www.leonardo.info. The Creative Destruction of Medicine, Wednesday, March 14th at 6 p.m. at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco on the second floor of 595 Market Street.
Eric Topol, MD, Director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute, co-founder and vice chairman of the West Wireless Health Institute, and author of The Creative Destruction of Medicine. Dr. Topol says that medicine is poised to go through its biggest shakeup in history, an unprecedented convergence of technologies, such as the ability to digitize human genomes and the invention of wireless tools, is gaining momentum, thrusting the medical field into the digital era. Tickets are $20 for general public, $8 for members, and $7 for students. Ask a Scientist is hosting a puzzle party on Pi Day, Wednesday, March 14th at 7 p.m. This is a math and logic puzzle competition for teams of up to six people. It is free, but you are encouraged to support the venue by purchasing foods and or drinks. The winning team will get a round of drinks and an overwhelming sense of pride. Bring a jacket in case there is overflow onto the sidewalk of the Bazaar Cafe, 5927 California at 21st in San Francisco. Visit askascientistsf.com for more info. The March Science at Cal Lecture will be given at 11 a.m. on Saturday, March 17th in the Genetics and Plant Biology Building, Room 100. The talk will be given by Dr. Hazel Bain and is entitled The Sun, a Star in Our Own Backyard. Dr. Bain is a postdoc with the Reuven Ramati High Energy Spectroscopic Solar Imager Solar Physics Group at the Space Sciences Laboratory at UC Berkeley. Her main area of research involves studying solar eruptive events such as flares, jets, and coronal mass ejections using both space and ground-based instruments. In describing her talk, Dr. Bain said, The stars in the night sky have always been a source of intrigue and wonder. With our very own star at the center of our solar system, the sun offers us a unique opportunity to study the inner workings of these giant balls of plasma. Starting at the core, I will discuss the processes occurring at the different layers of the sun. On to news. The four-mile-long Tevatron particle accelerator at Chicago's Fermilab was closed in September 2011 after being one of the most powerful accelerators for 20 years. But in analyzing 500 trillion subatomic particle collisions from the CDF and D0, the team says that they may have generated about 1,000 Higgs bosons, the particle that is responsible for mass in the standard model of physics. In a previous episode of Spectrum that you can download from iTunes U, we interviewed Dr. Simone Pagan-Grizzo about the hunt for the Higgs. The probability of these measurements being due to a statistical fluke instead of the measurements of the Higgs is about 1 in 30, or about 2.2 sigma. This is well below the 1 chance in 3.5 million, or 5 sigma, that will be used to claim the actual discovery of the Higgs. The energy of the detected events is between 115 billion and 135 billion electron volts, which is in good agreement with the range of 124 billion electron volts to 126 billion electron volts that CERN's Large Hadron Collider established with 3.6 sigma certainty. The Large Hadron Collider is on winter break, but will be fixed up again in April to continue trying to find the Higgs with 5 sigma certainty. The Cal Energy Corps is offering internships around the world, from Brazil to Germany to Ghana to China, as well as in the Bay Area. During the summer of 2012, internships will offer UC Berkeley undergraduates the opportunity to pursue challenging, hands-on projects in energy and climate research, according to the Office of the Vice Chancellor for Research. Among the projects Cal Energy Corps interns will be involved in are efforts to create green coal as industrial fuel, helping to produce biofuels, working on improving photovoltaics for integration into the electricity grid, 
building models to better understand climate change, and designing and testing cook stoves. The internship program provides a $600 weekly stipend for all interns, as well as funding to cover transportation and housing. All placements are full-time. More information and application forms are available at the Cal Energy Corps website. Explaining Science to an 11-Year-Old The Flame Challenge, sponsored by the Center for Communicating Science, is an attempt to reach the very core of science communication. The contest asks scientists and generally clever people to submit their own explanations of what a flame is, explanations that would captivate an 11-year-old. The Flame Challenge contest is open for entries between March 2nd and April 2nd, with the winners to be announced in June. Entries can be in writing, video, or graphics, and they can be playful or serious as long as they are accurate and connect with the young judges. For more information and entry forms, visit the Challenge website, flamechallenge.org. Music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album titled Folk and Acoustic. It is made available by Creative Commons License 3.0 Attribution. to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.